thank you for tuning in to The Psychedologist. This is Consciousness Positive Radio. I am here to introduce an episode that was published on Tantra Punk's podcast. I met Ben on the internet and we realized we had the psychedelic and sexuality, sex positive connection. Uh, So we had a few phone calls and then we had this awesome conversation. And I included my partner, Matt, who's in the punk scene, uh, has been for over 15 years. And so in this episode, we go into being a psychedelic person who is also um, engaging in altered states via sexual exploration and exploring the body and relating sexually with other people. We talk about safety as it pertains to that. We talk about boundaries and... There's a, a lot of great dialogue in this episode. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, dear beloveds. Welcome to Tantra Punk Podcast, episode number 168. This is going to be a very interesting and enlightening episode. I'm joined by Leah Friedman, who is the psychologist, and she is an adjunct professor of psychology, a psychedelic advocate, and permaculturalist, among many other wonderful, beautiful, and amazing things that we will learn all about shortly. And also uh, one of her um, partners in in life and in love, and his name is Matt Hollander, and he is a psychonaut punk rocker, has been in bands for 15 years, currently the frontman of Ancient Filth. Is that correct? Yep. Awesome. And he's been booking shows and doing events and also helped start the Boston Entheogenic Network. He's very interested in the intersection of radical politics and consciousness and freedom of consciousness. So... Um, to give a little bit of background before we get all started with this, um, there was a, a recent um, psychedelic symposium conference in Los Angeles, and I felt like I normally would be all over attending, but I had some uh, just some duties I had to attend to, and I felt like, you know, I feel like I'm maybe at a higher point of leverage to just connect with some of the presenters. Um, look at the people we're presenting uh, and see what they're talking about and then maybe find folks of interest to invite on the podcast rather than go and and actually be there in person and kind of broke my heart that I wasn't there but then I just felt like you know something good will come out of it and this was really the result of that was looking into some of the um, the things going on around that around that event and and in the movement and uh, wanted to check into this phenomenon of there being sort of research and resources around collecting um, testimonials about sexual misconduct from psychedelic shamanic practitioners, whether they be doing um, sort of tantra type work or sexual healing type work, hands-on work involving some some um, psychedelic medicines or just people who are in the psychedelic shamanic community and their basic um, authority and power that they may be, you know, consciously or or unconsciously abusing and misusing in sexual ways and dynamics and certainly just the how patriarchy, which is the the sort of backdrop to everything, how that how that infects and and poisons even our best intentions um, in ceremonies and in communities. So a lot to talk about that is, you know, really what we talk about is the shadow work and, you know, in, in sacred sexuality, the shadow work is, is uncomfortable but necessary to, to deal with. And also, uh, this, these are the slipperiest of slopes um, for sure, for sure, or for certain in psychedelic work and in sexual sexuality work. So I'm always thrilled to have conversations that further this discourse and get people who are, who are passionate about, um, 
these issues. And then I can't, I can't thank these two folks enough for being so in resonance with my personal background. We're talking about my favorite things, punk rock, entheogens, permaculture, you know, what, what more do you need to uh, heal and, sex. and save and, right, and sex, like, oh, like, <laughs> sex, sex, drugs and rock and roll 2.0. So uh, maybe that's what we should call this episode. But uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're um, yeah, really doing our best here, I would say. And it's just been a blessing to connect. And we've had some fun, some fun talks leading up to this. And uh, what we're going to attempt to do is just have a bit of a round table and this is i think the first time i've done this and also it's a blessing because leah is going to on her podcast the psychologist podcast is going to rebroadcast or we could even call it like a punk rock style split seven inch release kind of a thing (laughs) (laughs) my favorite kind of thing so um so that was my my typical um, exhaustive intro, and now I'm going to turn it over to Leah to address the audience of her podcast, and um, we'll give her the, the the floor to introduce her work. Ah, well, usually to start off my episodes, I just I have an introduction, which they're all make an introduction before this, so everyone on my show just heard the introduction, and then I go, "This is Ben Tantra Punk. Say hi." That's really all I do. So, hi Ben, say hi. Hi. <laughs> I am cool. all right, I'm, and we're done. Cool. I'll <laughs> Tell us who you are. <laughs> yes, my name is Ben Lawson. I uh, go by the name Tantra Punk as a stage name, and I am your guide to sexual liberation, healing, and empowerment. And you can find out a lot more about what all that means at tantrapunk.com, where I have a podcast and I create educational, instructional videos and sacred trance dance music and i also come from a long history in the punk rock and metal movement and i have been in numerous bands and um am sort of yeah reconciling all this stuff in my my personal life and professional life and i and i would say that to a degree i am a um somewhat semi-professional practicing sexual shamanic practitioner with certain um credentials to my name of being a certified tantric counselor under the tantra quest school in san diego and um, also a certified permaculture designer and a lot of um just uh, other badges of of honor i suppose along the way but i'm doing my best to stay uh, in service and to stay um as humble as possible and integrate as much uh input from other people because we're, we're, we're really talking about some of the, the slipperiest of slopes doing any of this kind of work. And um, so I'm here to kind of be roasted in a way, like I'm open to being roasted <laughs> for my beliefs and my practices. And, uh, and also to, um, yeah, just explore all of our different experiences. So, um, yeah, so what do you, th- should we, Matt, do you want to talk a bit about yourself and, and give us more of your background and then we can all kind of get, get going? Sure. Yeah, I'm uh, Matt Hollander. Uh, I'm, a, as you'd say, a psychonaut. I've been working with psychedelics for, I don't know, 15 years and just for personal exploration and also for helping deal with depression and anxiety. I've also been in the punk rock scene in Boston for around the same amount of time, been playing in bands, setting up shows, um, just interested in the intersection of radical politics and psychedelics and, and different ways of thinking and um, some of the uh, ideas of uh, non-duality and just different uh, trying to understand what is uh, 
or find my place in this uh, crazy world we live in. Uh, I also helped start the Boston Entheogenic Network, a Boston community group that brings together people from all places and ages to talk about psychedelic and altered consciousness, consciousness experiences and just a place of support and place where we can go and, and talk and really, you know, as they say, find the others. Awesome. Mm, yeah. And you're, you're, uh, where do we hear your band, Ancient Filth? I have my band, Ancient Filth. You can go to ancientfilth.bandcamp.com or you can look us up on YouTube. But yeah, I think all the, all the music is on, on the Bandcamp for free to listen to or download. And yeah. Awesome. I've checked And the out. lyrics. Yeah. Check out the lyrics. Leah, if you would be so kind as to step into the matriarch role for as long as you'd like, you can kind of set us up and, and start to draw out, you know, what's what's most prescient for, for you and your thinking around these topics. And then, um, you know, I feel like we can just go from there. If you're comfortable with that, I, I, would, I would think that'd be great. Sure. Well, I mean, I can lead. I don't think we have to gender it in this case. Um, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about consent lately and people in the community ourselves building up our ability to understand what is yes and what is no. And I think it's particularly relevant in altered states. It's obviously relevant in sexual play in sexual experiencing, even with the self, um, just the idea of giving the self consent to, um, go on a personal experience is um, something I may never have considered, but I think that is a practice we should all look at. So I think any conversation about sexuality and psychedelics, especially those two together, has to start with consent. And um, I don't know. I mean, Ben, like if we want to do this as just kind of a conversation, maybe we could start with talking about that. That is a great idea. So what to yeah, how about we all maybe we just wrote take turns talking about what it feels like to be um erotic self exploration on drugs and uh <laughs> I don't think you can go wrong. <laughs> no one can tell you that you're not telling the truth, you know, no one can no one can contend with it if it's your own private experience. So actually last night I, I would say I just was I'm coming right off of a of a pretty profound journey myself. So maybe I can do a little bit of like a slam poetry <laughs> to talk about what that feels like. What my Oh on air. Sorry, yeah. yeah, yeah. So how does that sound? Should we each you know start from yeah what you're saying the very the very root of consent being a very personal personal thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's start with you and then see where that leads to. I think, yeah, a little on-air integration. Why not? What could go wrong? <laughs> right. Okay. So I've given, I've been been given permission by the, the Hindu tantric goddess Kali to kiss and tell. And um, she's definitely uh, a very poly type of uh, creature and um, loves all the other goddesses and, and what likes to watch me play with other goddesses in the human and non-human forms and whatnot. Um, but uh, I always feel like um, by coming down from mushrooms, uh, which are my drug of choice, uh, I feel like I 
having to face the mundane world and get back into traffic and get back into day jobs and all that stuff. It's always a step down from the glory of being in union with, with the, the, yeah, the, the sexy dark goddess uh, that, that has been invoked in the jungles of throughout India for since time immemorial, I mean, for going back 20,000 years, at least in the archaeological record, the indigenous pagan hunter gatherers had been celebrating the, the earth mother goddess and, and um, certainly discovering and playing with the erotic forms and really having a lot of uh, magical ritual involved with that. So as a, as a white boy in the American West in the 21st century, it's, you know, the way that I've encountered her has been quite, um, an adventure. And I would say it's, it's the, if, if there was one thing I'm here to do, it's to correct the history in the Indiana Jones temple of doom movie where he goes, to, he goes to a Kali temple and they get it all wrong. And it's all backwards. Cause instead of liberating children and slaying demons, she is the demoness goddess who's enslaving, enslaving children and corrupting everyone. But the only thing they did get right about that movie is that, and I've had to think about it a lot because it is considered by Hindu um, Orthodox Hindu Kali worshipers who are worshiping a very demure and very domesticated form of the goddess in temples throughout India and, and in homes. You know, they've stripped a lot of the wild sexual nature away from her. But even the most, um, yeah, the, there's a huge backlash to that movie amongst, amongst um, Orthodox Hindu Kali worshipers uh, because it's so offensive and so uh, such a colonized view of the goddess. Um, but what's what's so what I found so interesting after studying their critique of that movie, that film, and after watching it again, I realized, wait a minute, there's a deeper truth that they were conveying here without even knowing it. And a lot of Kali worshippers say, "All is Ma," meaning that even the dark, even the most sinister things about our inner nature, and you know, people out there, the sociopaths, psychopaths. If you look at them as teachers and, you know, at some level, they just need to have the demon whisperer come in and tickle uh, tickle the demons out of them so that they can be activated into the light. And there's like a deeper love story of transformation that's involved in this. But if you watch that movie again, you will notice, ah, the deeper, the deeper critique that they were offering is that the reason this all went awry and that the thuggy cult emerged to practice, you know, they were basically thieves who were worshiping the goddess and trying to extract magical powers from her in a perverted and corrupted way doing human sacrifice. And now what really was the problem with that whole picture is that it was all male priests and they, they wedged the female priestesses out of the pagan spirituality of psychedelic goddess worship and they replaced it with a Brahmanistic, hierarchical, empire-building, male priest-led only the priests could speak the language and write the words and they, they pushed the feminine out of the fucking goddess and can't even believe what they did. But you see it, it's like, oh yeah, it's, it's all men doing this puja ritual where they're sacrificing people. That's the problem. Now, if I can come back and bring my love story with the goddess to, you know, eventually bring um, uh, Harrison Ford to the Kali temple on Laguna Beach for him to bow down and meet the goddess then we can redo that script and, and I'll be happy to continue that legacy in, in the right way and show her in her grand glory. So that's, that's what, that's, that is the vibe that I'm rolling off of after being in union with the goddess last night. And uh, I don't know what that means to anybody in this moment, but it's just, <laughs> said, I'm, yeah, I'm doing my best to just uh, go with the stream of consciousness. So um, yeah, that's my, 
that's my uh, contribution to the self-loving psychedelic ritual component of this combo. I feel like it's a great pitch for like a trippy porn, and I think we should roll with it. Well, actually, you're two steps ahead of this. I don't know if this actually was made or if it was a joke, but it was called Indiana Jones and the Temple of Poon. <laughs> Oh, I did not know that was going to come up today. And that is amazing. Okay. I need to shut up now, please. Next. Maddie, it made me, it made me think about something that you experienced in a trip once. I don't know if you, it made you think of the same thing and maybe you want to share. Um, well, uh, what were you thinking? Because I've, I, a couple things have come up in my thoughts. But what were you, which one were you thinking? Eating the cosmic pussy. Oh yes, I did. I did have an amazing experience on LSD and uh, MDMA, where I was. Yeah, I had <laughs> the, the cosmic, <laughs> the world cosmic vagina was in front of me, and I was there to pleasure it and. Uh, yeah, it was <laughs> it was very it was, it was pretty amazing. I was just down like I was lying on my back outside just at a festival and and she was in front of me and I was uh, there and I it, yeah, it was, it was quite in, quite intense and quite amazing. I think I learned a lot from it. <laughs> I think. Oh, tell <laughs> us. Did. Can you tell us more cuz it sounds like you're going to you're going to do a remake of Stargate with uh, Kurt Russell. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't even. It's just like I just started getting images of 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 the cosmic vagina, and and I just my my mouth started to to go move in these ways that it was like it was it was almost like I didn't even have my own own control, and it was yeah, it was very it was very tantalizing. It was very it was very an amazing experience, <laughs> and having the the world uh, basically come all over my face <laughs> like, I, like, a, a deluge, like a deluge like a giant a giant waterfall um yeah and it was it was quite an experience <laughs> and then yeah. Leah and, and a couple other people came over like how are you doing and I'm like I'm doing great <laughs> <laughs> awesome they don't call it the milky way for nothing right <laughs> yes oh <laughs> yeah I, I said once uh uh someone someone asked me actually uh rack razam who is a uh, uh, highly esteemed shamanic um facilitator and documentarian and uh in a conversation about this kind of stuff that we had on the previous podcast you know he asked me once he's like how do you know that kali is not a demon how do you know that she's not disguised in some way and i'm like well the proof's in the pudding man i mean it's the samadhi the bliss that you get and you just you feel like you're on a spin cycle in the cosmic yoni and you know you feel it so <laughs> i'm not gonna argue <laughs> uh, all right are, are you so are we ready for leah's uh testimonial confessions uh <laughs> i hope a lot of catholic priests are listening in the confession booth of this I was going to say they can tune in because I'm as pure and like the most opposite of profane as it gets when it comes to psychedelics. I, uh, it, as trippy and wild as it gets for me is I just completely become a plant. <clears throat> and I don't know, maybe plants, they must have sexual feelings actually with those 
beautiful flowers that they produce to get bees and pollinators to come inside and tickle them and, and gather their, their seed or their dust or whatever. But um, yeah, I, I haven't had much sexual fantasy in trips, but I know that, you know, I've, I've struggled, I've thrived, I've, you know, I've gone through my entire life with body dysmorphia. And, and this is like some of my oldest memories of being in a body are, are dysmorphic of just a, um, kind of a, like a, a wrenched image of myself in this form. And when I took LSD for the first time, and most times that I've taken it afterward, I had a sense of being like free and and yet like inhabiting and grounded in my body, if that makes sense, like being free from it, but also like being fully in it. And I have worked with that sense because this is what I think is unique in the entheogenic or the altered consciousness experience is like the ability to access that state of thinking afterward, if only just as remembering what it felt like to be that way. You can't necessarily call it in all the time, but it's like the, the roads are, the roads have been traveled once before, like the, the neuronal pathways have at least been touched. And so tapping back into that, I've had a lot of sexual liberation um, due to psychedelic experiences of, of inhabiting my form more of, of like of embodiment. So that, that's what I would say to the point, I think, is my ability to receive and to be in pleasure comfortably um, has definitely been helped by psychedelics. That's very interesting. And you have a psychology background. So I, I feel like it's sacrilege to even invoke this name, but because you're a psychologist, you would be very familiar with this. Like what, what I hear you describing is bring, gives me flashbacks to the brief study of Freud that I had to do in anthropology. It was like kind of a sidebar in that, in that training. But um, I remember distinctly, and it's kind of triggered by what you're saying is that, this you know there's there's not a whole lot honestly that i agree with about his his thesis his theses but one thing that does ring true to me is that notion that sexuality begins before puberty and it's about just pleasure in the body and how you discover that like i used to play with my belly button and it used to just give me this surges of of overwhelming arrows that uh, no one around me could figure out but it didn't seem you know pathological it just seemed like hey it's better than cartoons why not um, and that would be a form of self-exploration and discovery of arrows that, that kind of like you're saying, if, you know, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's like, doesn't have to be genital focused, doesn't have to be about friction fucking with somebody or something. It can be about inhabiting and feeling deeply into the sensuousness of your whole being. And that sounds like a great, a great kind of approach to it. Is that, is that, um, ring a bell for you and, and, and kind of, we want to, could you go off of that with your bring it into the lens of psychology and, and, and that stuff? Oh, sure. Um, hmm, yeah. Well, I do think that as that we are sexual beings from the beginning um, and, and part of, part of our sexuality, I think is influenced by the, the cultural climate that we're raised in and w- most of which is sex negative, unless you're in um, some kind of countercultural family or, or your, you know, it's, it's just not as much the norm, I think, to be encouraged to discover and self-pleasure 
yourself, um, you know, or, or like sexual play amongst children is almost always uh, frowned upon and, and prevented. And I'm not necessarily advocating for that because there's like a consent issue again to kind of go back to it. But then again, like I remember engaging in sexual play with little friends that I had when I was five, six, um, little other little girls and little boys. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that none of that felt exploitative or like too close, you know, that I understood my boundaries enough to only do things that felt comfortable to me. But I think for what you're asking about the experiencing of pleasure, I, I think like there's a, there's all these different stoppers to pleasure for me. There can be right. Like um, being in a place that just like doesn't feel safe. doesn't feel like the right setting for, for sex or for pleasure that kind of like stoppers my ability to experience it. Or, um, you know, if there's like a, a list of things on my mind that I have to attend to, that, that's just like, it's kind of like a cock block, I guess. It just like gets in the way of feeling turned on, of, of like loving what's going on. And then another thing that would get in the way is body dysmorphia. So to be able to access the sense of embodiment was, to me, it was useful um, sexually because uh, it just allowed me to like unstopper the flow of pleasure, you know, the, to, t- to take off the reducing valve for the, the sensations that are possible. Feel free to, you know, as my sexual partner, Matt, feel free to. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that question, um, like where you, I think, you know, has, as we've been together, I think we've been exploring a lot of these issues of, you know, definitely with, you know, cause I, you know, um, it's, with our practice, I think, you know, like I, you know, well, we, we have conversations about, you know, just like being in a body and not feeling like you think it's beautiful and where I come and I see your body and I think it's the most amazing thing in the world. And I, and so it's really, I know it's been amazing to be able to, you know, to, you know, give pleasure to someone who I think is gorgeous and, and really help them come into their body and it's just it's such an amazing thing for both of us to experience something like that and to go you know to really learn and grow with each other has been just a real a real amazing experience yeah it's been an honor well that's beautiful to hear so now you know what comes to mind i'd like to ask you all um since we have a a live uh, a couple here to talk about this is a very interesting opportunity for me and i feel like so there is a there's a continuum of gateway drugs the so-called gateway drugs and and i feel like uh what if we look at maybe the what i'm seeing is sort of a pyramid of of uh, a gradient sort of pyramid of of patterns in the world population of of altered states and sexual uh, and sexuality, and obviously, the majority—I think the majority of of sexual—well, we, we probably even the majority of conception on this planet is is happening in a drunken state. I don't know if that's you know if that's verifiable statistically, but certainly probably within certain cohorts of the, of the population demographics that that is a, a huge factor. So probably the base of this pyramid is is uh, is alcohol and. Um, and then above that, next, probably some level of cannabis, whether smoked or, 
or um, consumed orally, or in my favorite case, rubbed on the gen- genitals in, a, in an infusion with coconut oil. Um, that's, yeah. So, we're, so the, the way I kind of see this is ex, ex, uh, pyramid going up to I me. Mean, ultimately, the, the crazy, I think the craziest thing you could possibly imagine doing would be to have sex on, you know, in the middle of a DMT blast off. And Terrence McKenna has an audio spoken word piece where he talks about that experience of doing that, which I have not done. But uh, I think, you know, so in, in between there, you have, you know, I think for me, it, you, you think about if you, the, 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 the higher up you go, the greater the, the stakes, the greater the exposure to out otherworldly entities and just other forces that you may not be able to guard against and they can kind of enter the space and and mess things up. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know if that, yeah, so I guess what I want to ask you to, since you have different different personal practices and, and uh, preferences, do you have uh, maybe milder, uh, alcohol or cannabis kind of um, ceremonial sexual experiences together and, and anything beyond that that you care to, to talk about? Yeah, well, um, well, one one thing is I find it kind of difficult to have a sexual experience on psychedelics. Maybe on a lower dose, but on a high dose. Like, I, I for me, like, like pleasure is, is a big thing, but, like, getting to like to get down to it is, is always hard for me. Maybe on the come down or something like that, but it's just something that is, uh, I don't know. I, I just don't seem like, like, like it's more of a mental, the mental uh, er, eroticism is more tantalizing than actually physically doing it. Um, but definitely I think cannabis, that's a whole other, that's a whole other story. That, I think that's the, one of the, one of the best pleasures is, uh, uh, Cannabis and copulation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It was hard for you to have sex on psychedelics, uh, to paraphrase. And the funny thing is that I have the opposite problem, which is that if I get too high in psychedelics, I, it, it becomes soft for me, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> no, totally. Yeah. Well, that's what's yeah. hard. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that's not hard. hard. It's not hard. Yeah, it's, it's hard. hard. <laughs> but it's, uh, Crystal crystal wands is the the uh, you know my backup plan for that to be in service. <laughs> okay, so all dick jokes aside, Leah, please. <laughs> Do you want me to dig you out of this dick joke hole or? Yeah, yeah, please. Okay. Um. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I remember hearing Allison Gray talking about sex and psychedelics once, and. She was saying how each couple, it's their duty to discover what works for them. And I remember her saying that when it comes to cannabis, maybe it's better for the guy to have a little bit less so that he can pay more attention. And then in the case of the woman, and this is like right, making an assumption on cis, hetero couples, et cetera. But in, in this case, what she said affected me, which was like the woman, like she doesn't need, in fact, she shouldn't pay attention, like let her attention drift. And mm-hmm. so when it comes to, yeah, like cannabis right before sex, I, you know, I think to myself, right back to the consent thing, like, is this something I want? Like, do I want to be in a, an altered state cannabis wise for this sexual experience? And then I take a read on like where my attention is at. And, you know, weed does help my attention go to go into my body sometimes. I mean, I have 
one of my favorite embodiment practices is to sit with some cannabis and then to do yoga to some music. That's just like a very sensual experience for me. So, yeah, I'm, I, I think that, like Maddie said, the tripping is so expansive. So it's so altering. It's, it can be so, so pleasurable and then so difficult all, all at once that um, I don't often feel the need to pair it with, with sexual uh, interaction with another. Definitely the come down. Like, I think that it's really good to be gentle with yourself on the come down. And so like um, intimacy with a trusted known partner can be a really beautiful activity to ease back into consensus reality. That's what I would say on it. That is such a good point that, yeah, if you're in a, in the peak of the trip, then you're probably wanting to be just in a safe place where you can not feel responsible to communicate or interact with another human being, but where you're out there in there very deeply. But then when you start to come back to be able to spoon or cuddle, or if you're in the mood, get a little freaky, then that's probably a, a nice cool down or a come down, you know, exercise. So maybe that's probably, a, and then you'd have your wits about you enough to, to, to not be, you know, I mean, you could like put it on a scale of one to 10 or something. And it's like, once you're back to like a four or five, or three or whatever, then you can talk about with a partner, you know, to, to move that direction. So I think that's actually probably a really good strategy that I had never even really thought about, although I'm sure it's, I mean, I know it's just happens, you know, I've had, I'm sure I've been <laughs> in, in those instances with partners, you know, where it's like, okay, are, I'm still, are you, are you, are you, you again? You know? Yeah. me. <laughs> exactly. Very, very interesting. So, you know, something I, I actually was watching that, that movie uh, Suburbia uh, yesterday for the first time in, in a while. And that was a very formative kind of um, in, initiation for me into the, the drunk punk street game. The original Suburbia, correct? Exactly. Yeah. The one with the yeah. Orange County punk scene and just the, the squatters and the TR house. And, and what I feel like, what I, I've kind of distanced myself a lot from the punk movement over the last almost decade because I felt that the level of consciousness that was stuck in alcohol and in the worst cases, heroin and cocaine, which had become rampant a lot on the East Coast. When I tour the East Coast, I see them like, oh my God, this is not what I signed up for. I mean, yeah, cheap beer and puking and puking your guts out and all that stuff. And yeah, you know, that's kind of the rite of passage, but but Coke, I mean, I thought that was a rich man's drug. This is, how can punks afford Coke? And it's just blown my mind. So blow. But um, I want to ask you, Matt, you know, <laughs> from your from your background in the punk rock scene, um, how, how, how have you experienced, like, what's your journey been with dealing with uh, just the, the inherent rampant unconsciousness of alcoholism and other stimulant drugs of abuse? And then your passion for entheogens are you able to integrate that at all or what have your challenges been there because that's certainly been my my sort of um you know hard problem yeah definitely um i'm kind of blessed with never really liking alcohol that much i mean i would always drink because you know that's what you do you know we go we go out and say you know 14 years old like hey mister will you go to the packy for us will you go to the package store and drink 40s, you know, and so I was around it, and, but I just, I never liked it, but I did it, and I was always, I, I smoked more weed, but I'd still drink, but I think, you know, a good majority of my friends are, were, and still are alcoholics, and 
especially, you know, in the punk scene, it's like, you know, like, oh, smoking weed for hippies and like, you know, we're going to get drunk. So yeah, it's been, you know, it's, it's really tough because it's something that like I can, I've come to a place where I do like, I, I'll drink maybe a couple times a month and I can do it in a, you know, in a, in a, in a fine way that I think is a healthy relationship with it. But yeah, it's, I think there's, especially with punk, it comes, you know, a lot of people come from places of, of heartache and broken homes and it's, you know, it's this one escape that everyone's doing. Um, but it's really destructive. And over time, like I have friends who it's ruined their lives. And it's something that, you know, we started so young that it's, it becomes normal. And by the time, you know, you're in your mid twenties, it's like, Oh, I, I've had a drink every day since I've been 15. So to really like break these cycles is really, really, really difficult. Um, and I'm just, I don't know if it's, I'm blessed with just different genes where I don't have, you know, have the, the personality to get addicted to it, or I was just lucky, you know, I mean, who knows? Um, and it's like, you know, the, there's a real need to escape. And this is, this is the way that we've been, that we've been, you know, this is what we've been given by, I always think it's funny. It's like, alcohol is the legal drug. That's like what we're given. And, you know, punk is supposed to be all anti-authority, but our favorite thing is booze. And it's, it's, it seems like an oxymoron kind of. Um, and I don't know, like it's, it's, it's interesting too with, you know, psychedelics where it's like, okay, you can still get fucked up, but then maybe is this a better, like, is it more of, of in a way that is helping you than hurting you? And I mean, I think that's a big question because, you know, I think you, you can definitely abuse psychedelics. You can do it to escape, you can do it too much, which I know many people who do. And I probably, in the beginning of my psychedelic exploration, I did as well. Right. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's, um, it's really, I don't know, it's, it's really sad. And like with the cocaine, it's rampant. And, and this too, I think there's a lot too of like these older people now they've been in the punk scene for a while and I think this could probably happen in you know the festival scene or anything else it's like getting into the harder drugs and showing it to the younger more impressionable pe- people and and then you know the whole consent thing you know if you have someone drunk and then you're being like hey do you want to try this I think it's really really dangerous and I've just seen a lot of young kids you know go to addiction and and it's 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 real. It's a problem in the major society, you know, in the big society, and the countercultures. You know, if it's be the the burner scene or the punk scene or whatever scene you're in, it's it's the problems are always, you know, the microcosm of the greater greater problems. That was a, a, Maddie, a very well, yeah, good thesis there. Maddie also has like some interesting perspectives on bringing psychedelics to the punk scene, or like I don't know. Yeah, is that something you you could talk about too? Yeah, well, like it's. I mean, I really like it would be because I think there's a lot of healing that needs to be going to coming all over the world. But definitely, you know, it's like punks. You know, even just the name, you know, the outcast. And I think that psychedelics could really, really help a lot of people in the punk scene. Um, but I think you know you need some support too, rather than just you know, oh, we're gonna do these. I mean, I think it's everywhere. Rather than just like, okay, I'm going to go do some psychedelics and then come back to the same, you know. I think, and also too, it's like, 
in the punk scene, especially it's chaos and craziness and like, yeah, like let's just get fucked up and fuck shit up, which is good. But like, why do we, we don't have, we can do that and like not be part of the system, but we don't have to hurt ourselves in the process. Yeah, that's exactly, man. That is a more conscious and involved way of not self-destructing in the process. And it's hard because a lot of the memes embedded in some of the classic music that you know you have that you all everyone gets sort of um, introduced through born to die die in the gutter no future no hope i mean there's so much live fast die young yeah and you know what i had a joke that i said to my friend i was out doing a uh, landscaping construction work with an old friend of mine who is a, a classic old school icon of the la punk scene and um and he's you know kind of aging and feeling it you know and just wow like really it's like you we did not plan for living living long enough to when our bodies were going to really start to to um, make us regret the decisions we made earlier on and we're really suffering for it and i'm starting to feel some of that and i i made a joke you know but it just it, it felt true to me it's like you know what man the gods of punk promised me that I would die young and they fucking lied. <laughs> exactly. In perfect punk faction, you know, <laughs> showing you a bunch of crap. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. It's funny. So Leah, if I could ask you, I know, I, I believe when we spoke, um, uh, offline previously that you've, you, we, if I have the word right, you kind of describe yourself as coming more from like a hippie or a hippie ish kind of realm. And, uh, you want to, if that's correct, or however you want to frame it, do you want to talk about just kind of your your subcultural affiliations and how how you feel? Um, yeah, I guess sensuality, sexuality, psychedelics have been kind of a, a constructed, socially constructed in your milieu of, of choice. Ooh, yes. Um, the, well, the first thing that popped into my head was about power, and you know, something that some hippies love is a good guru we all love a good guru and we all hate a good guru and a bad guru and they're they're you know sometimes like the guru is good for some people and bad for others um but what i'm thinking of right now is like when it comes to sex and sexuality it's like these spiritual leaders who um they have great teachings you know they're very charismatic perhaps attractive to some of their students and they like use their position to, um, you know, whether intentionally or not, to exploit their followers. Um, so I think, like, in say medicine communities, communities drinking ayahuasca. Um, I'm sorry to report that I've heard of a lot of people getting. Um, swept up in sexual relationships with their, you know, the person who's supposed to be like holding spiritual space for them. And it's not, it's not someone specializing in sexual healing using entheogens, right? It's like, it's just supposed to be ayahuasca or psilocybin. And so at, um, I think something that hippies like might struggle with, or that I've noticed is the sexual liberation that kind of is, comes with that, that movement, like free love, um, you know, experiencing our unity together. And then this can lead to a lot of unsafe predicaments or situations, just as much as it can offer um, enlightenment via uh, communion with another person sexually. I think it can be very dangerous 
And it, it can be dangerous to know if you are actually saying yes or if it's the concoction of experiences, like if it's the, you know, is it the substance like making you say, want to say yes? Is it like your ego being stroked and, you know, growing larger that's making you say yes because you feel like um, you can get to this other level with this person? Yeah, that that's a, an issue, I think. I don't know if we want to go off from there. Absolutely. Well, another thing yeah. is, well, we were t- you were talking about earlier, Leah, um, but just, or if, you know, you have this person who you've, you know, you've, you've either paid money for, or you've been reading for a while and they tell you like, Hey, like I'm interested in you. Right. Like, is that like, and like, are you saying yes because you want to, or because, you know, you're like, Oh, well, they, they, they know more than me. They have, you know, they know what's best for me. They want what's best for me. And maybe that's not always true. Yeah, right, right. And like, can, you know, it does consent work the same way when there's a power differential? Mm. Right. And even like when you, when it's a business thing too, when it's like you're paying for these services and this is not, you know, like it's like kind of the doctor patient, like can a, is it all right for a patient, for a doctor to make advances on their patients or teacher to student or, you know, guru to follower? Yeah, I mean, in school, we learned that if you have a client and you're helping them with something that's not super deep, say they're like grieving the loss of a parent or something, and you offer them therapy briefly, can you date them after? And the like arbitrary answer was yes, after two years, you can date them if it wasn't like deep emotional therapy with them. Very. (laughs) I always thought that was kind of interesting. (laughs) Yeah, this is like, uh, wow. This is the kind of stuff that uh, I really want eventually to be worked into some kind of um, white paper industry, some sort of one sheet or kind of the thing. It's like, uh, well, there. I mean, every every industry that's very well established, they have governmental regulatory bodies that interact with lobbyists, and there's a revolving door between industry leaders and regulators, and what ends up ossifying over the course of even centuries in some industries is this sort of uh, be, sort of best unspoken but some a continuum of unspoken best practices to very rigorous ethical standards where you would be disbarred let's say as a you know there's a there's a number of sort of um, thresholds for being either shunned or literally uh, decredentialed in various industries and and it's definitely and the, it's like the funny thing is that uh, it's going through the cryptocurrency space is going through this right now. And, and as we speak, and it's the, the, uh, the allegory that's always used is like, if it's an unregulated new burgeoning industry, then it's just called the wild West. So in the, uh. the psychedelic sexual healing or just the um, ceremonial community where sexuality, sexual politics are always at play, whether we acknowledge them um, or frame them in any sort of contain, you know, any kind of framework or not. It is still, it is very much the wild west because a lot of people doing psychedelic ceremonies in in the west are are breaking the law, so they can't appeal to. I mean, you can't. It's like if 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 somebody calls the cops on a or files a report for an incident, they could be je- they could be incriminating themselves. So there's that that aspect as well is like there's I'm, I'm not personally interested at all in appealing to governmental authority you know i'd rather have elder councils that 
that help us navigate this this stuff. But um, this is really where where I'm getting really excited about the direction of the conversation because now we've kind of we've kind of um, really laid the table laid the set the table of discourse from these various backgrounds and we're all sort of representing similar but different um, personal histories and, and whatnot. One thing is that um, there's a really, uh, it was an amazing talk that happened on February 7th in New York City about the psychedelic patriarchy that um, Catherine McLean and some other people organized and they had a talk about patriarchy and sexual assault and it's, a, it's, it's all on YouTube and it's just a really great discussion with uh, four, six, six people who've, who've experienced um, sexual misconduct and have been in the, this psychedelic community for a long time. So I highly recommend anyone listening to check that, that out because it, um, it points out a lot of the problems and a lot of the things that are going on. And I think one of the big things is that people come out and survivors come out about this abuse and no one or, 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 and not everyone believes them. And so I think the first step is like creating a space of like support for people who do come out and places where people can come out and um, be heard and, and, and have a safe and not be re-traumatized by like saying that you're lying or this or that. Um, and Leah, I think you know of a, there's a good resource that um, that is already in place for people for well, yeah, that's actually how Ben found Ben and I found each other. Is um, he had emailed the psychedelic women email, and I'm sorry, Ben, are your what are your pronouns? I'm a man. You can say I'm 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 I'm, a, I'm the duder his dudeness El Duderino. I'm just a dude. I'm a guy. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> his dudeness had emailed the psychedelic women email, which is. Um, was developed after that psychedelic patriarchy talk, which, yeah, thank you for like throwing that out there. We should include that in the show notes. Uh, it's a great conversation. And yeah, that evolved as um, a decentralized means for people who've experienced sexual assault, harassment, violence, or, you know, it doesn't have to be of a sexual nature actually, um, but who don't know who to go to and aren't sure that they'll be safe going to, well, of course, they're probably not going to be safe going to mainstream authority. As you said, they might have been engaging in illegal activity or they might be afraid of it leading to an investigation of some other aspect of their lives that they'd rather remain private. Um, but to still offer support and to like have that support view from within the community. And so there are a few of us who are involved on that project of providing support to people who reach out and are just looking for I don't know, maybe like someone to talk to about what their options are or, or wanting to inform and warn other people about someone's predatory behavior, which also happens, unfortunately. Uh, and then the community is trying to d figure out how to deal with that. You know, there's, there's mediation that's available, you know, trained people who can bring together um, survivors who want to um, participate in the process of like mediation and perhaps like restorative justice after um, an assault. And I, I think that there's, yeah, when, when we all first talked on, on this topic there, I think there was some conversation about like, how can, you know, within the community, we hold space for processing these things. So we're not like casting out people who are 
people who've engaged in predatory behavior, but recognizing that that also comes from a need or a misunderstanding or like some, some pervasive pattern that, that like ideally can be broken because humans are so plastic and except for, you know, the jury's still out on sociopaths, like if they can be rehabilitated. But I believe that within the community, we can really keep people safe by having these lines of communication open and having support services available to validate the experience of survivors and to provide them with um, support that they don't often get, especially if they're speaking out against a person who's really popular or who's done a lot of good stuff, written good books or like done a lot of good healing. I, I personally have been um, helped and healed by a person who's also been accused of sexual misconduct. And so like, how, how do I process that as a, a person who's like had a direct positive experience with them? You know, it's tricky. Well, I think it's just, you know, being, you know, it's like, you just say, oh, we don't want to ruin this person's life, but like, you know, they've, you know, if they've done this and they've ruined other people's lives and it's like, okay, you win, we have to be accountable. And people, like you said, you know, like you, you can, no one's, you know, it's not, especially with psychedelics, you can look, it's like what's good and what's bad. There's all the gray area and you can do some really amazing things and do some really horrible things. And we just have to, I think accountability is, you know, like, do we want to hide or do we want to be accountable? Do we really want to like, you know, do something, you know, admit when we're wrong. And I think you had a big experience with recognizing like the importance of coming to terms with that. Right, Maddie? Um, say that one more time. Well, like, how did you get the idea for No More Hiding? Or, like, how, what is that? How did that come about, if you want to talk about it? Um, well, I think it's, like, because there's, there's that thing. It's, like, I'd rather, or, like, would you rather be right or, like, in, not in truth? But, I mean, the idea is basically, like, you can, like, like, when someone, like, if, if someone calls you a racist, like, there's usually two responses. One, like, oh, I'm being racist. Like, oh, my God. Like, how can I change? Or it's, like, no, I'm not racist. I'm a good person. And it's like, do you really care? Like, if you really cared, if you were being racist, then you'd be like, oh, I want to see the patterns I'm doing. And I want to change those. And it's like, I think, the, like, and, the, you know, we're calling out the thing. It's not like you're a bad person. We need, you know, you, you're, you're done. You're, now you're found out. You're a racist or you're this. It's like, no. Can you be accountable for your actions? Do you want to learn? Do you want to change? And if, you know, there's no, you know, there's no reason to hide if you're ready to change or if you want to see and you're like, okay, I'm not, you know, I'm a human, I have faults and I can see those faults and I'm ready to like learn and like try to like grow rather than like, no, I'm, I'm right. I'm a, I'm a good person and I'm going to fight this for some reason. <laughs> mm. it's, a, it's an ego trip. <laughs> wow. This is all, everything I asked for and dreamed about and more and more for the sake of this conversation, I feel like we're getting close to about an hour, but I feel like there's um, a few, a few more things I'd like to, I'd like to bring into focus and um, uh, certainly it, whatever else is on your all's minds, um, create time and space for that. So to, if I could um, give a little bit of commentary and response to, to what you, what you all said uh, up to this point, I feel like that is probably the um, the way to get some sort of 
um, fundamental framework for addressing these issues is is the first like my, I, I use that word triage, and so the doing the most good for the most people is what I learned in the community emergency response training, which is kind of like first aid for cities in an, in an emergency situation, whether it be an earthquake or a flood or some other natural or unnatural disaster. And, and, and their, their whole logic is that all of your decision-making and thinking and action should be with that ethic or with that mindset of doing the most good for the most people. And I feel like, um, uh, where that all begins from what I'm hearing you all say is that making it, however it takes shape for any given community or locality, that there be a, a welcoming process for people to share their stories in, in a respected and, and safe container and for there to be some process around how to handle that so it's not always like um, either reinventing the wheel or coming up against this harsh resistance and all these politics and defensiveness and people hiding and, and running away from the truth. So um, hopefully we can, as we, you know, I, I would love to continue this conversation and ultimately maybe we, and if it doesn't end up being a, a, a formal conference that is, you know, we could do, we could do teleconferences, we could do teleseminars, we could have ongoing roundtables and just, and just check in with each other. And I feel like this is the, in this age we have it's technologies at our fingertips we can we can continue and and further this so i I really appreciate you just helping me frame this better and say let's start with what we have to do to create the fund the basic infrastructure to get people to feel safe telling their stories and for there to be um some yeah standard some sort of non-authoritarian standardization of incident response um so that's that's those are kind of the the words that are coming to my mind around all this so thank you for again doing that um kind of bringing us full circle of that so are there other topics or issues what since we're on the line that you all feel strongly about um wanting to address um and if not maybe we can i might have a couple other things to propose and then we can just go from there Did you have anything? Nothing, no. Not coming to mind for me. Okay. And how much how much time do you both feel comfortable that you have? Because if if uh if I may, I might I might propose something. Maybe some what you got. Okay. Well, we'll sit, how about, you know, if we gauge about five, between five and 15 more minutes to, to, to play with the space while we have it, <laughs> that sounds good. So yeah, sure. just want to check in with that. So yeah, I, I um, want to be yielding to your time and to your, to your um, preferences. So if you all are feeling well cared for in, in this conversation, I, I guess I would say that it would be a blessing to me to, um, possibly have you have have a little bit of that roasting experience, you know, where you know you can um, f- throw me throw the ball at me and make me fall in the dunk tank or whatever, you know. What I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, for yeah, win a, a raffle ticket or something here, do a little bit of circus games um, because I feel like I'm I'm walking uh, a thin tight rope, razor's edge, you know, thin ice, eggshells, all that stuff, and um, with what I with where I have arrived with my, the research that I have done and the experimentation I've done. And also the experiences I've had of watching 
ceremonial communities crumble and punk rock scenes crumble and whether it's booze and statutory date rape in the punk scene with 35 year old rock stars sexually initiating 15 year old teenagers you know in the middle of the night in some Mm -hmm. park after boozing them out and i've been in bands where literally there's been a string of rapists that had to get um fishbowled by the community and if not ousted but it's it's just uh it's yeah there's you know my um I've I have been I've been in situations where I've been falsely accused of various forms of misconduct. I've been in situations where I have been uh, appropriately put in check and 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 sort of had to um, uh, to be publicly scrutinized and brought down. And there were things in the punk scene in my earlier years where where there were appropriate responses to uh, forms of misconduct and transgression that I was. I would say naively um, I, I, on the more benign spectrum of things, but uh, th- those, you know, so I guess I would say I can speak from experience. Not, I am not a rapist. I have not to my knowledge of my conscious mind ever violated any human being with my penis. And there have been instances where I would say that in blacked out, when a blacked out drunken, sp- drunken state, I destroyed a beautiful friendship by waking us both up in the middle of a blacked out drunken state with my hand uh, reaching onto her thigh and her thankfully waking up yelling at me, what the fuck are you doing? Me rolling over, apologizing in a, in a very, uh, what do you call it, hypnagogic state. And then us both thinking that it was a dream the next day and only after her, her very um, uh, kind of subtly disturbed reaction to me in the middle of the day together i was like hey is something wrong like what's are you what's wrong you seem different it's like i had a really weird dream last night and then i it it all flashed to me and i experienced it and what what freaked me out the most in that moment was realizing oh my god i can never get wasted and sleep next to a woman for the rest of my life if i ever find myself having more than two or three beers i'm gonna fucking climb a tree and fall out and break my neck before i ever sleep next to someone where i could possibly be predatory in that way and i feel like that was one of my big lessons and since then and witnessing a lot of my friends go down in sexual scandals where they were raping people girl raping their girlfriends while drunk in the punk scene i mean i've seen it all i've been on all sides of it i've been raped and abused as a child i've been a prostitute so it's like that is just me you know on this um uh in speaking from a place of saying you know i'm 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 willing to be transparent and willing to be to be probed and and prodded and and sort of um investigated and everything i've been through those cycles i've been through when one, them when they've been very functional and very appropriate and ones where they have been about rumors and drama and taking down you know the politics and of, of a punk scene like oh you're a public figure people are going to create rumors about you there's going to be other agendas there's going to be the telephone game distorting the facts and it all gets very squirrely very fast and so i'm in a position to really want there to be very very conscious sober strict best practice guidelines for for all for virginity for for psychedelic sexual healing work this the whole continuum i I feel like i have learned a lot and experienced a lot and uh and and i'm I'm not running from it and personally not hiding from it and uh and want to see 
you know, the, this kind of conversation continue and for there to be um, people who are uh, uh, really reformed perpetrators, which I consider myself to be very, very benign on that spectrum. But I would love for there to also be compassion for those perpetrators who have fallen from grace, you know, and for them to have opportunities to be in service and for them to be re- reformed and for that to be also part of the equation because I've witnessed where ousting a rapist can just, ousting a rapist from a conscious feminist anarcho-punk community can just resort, result in them slithering their way back into street punk and heavy metal where they can get away with it and nobody cares and young women are victimized just perpetually and there is no standard of holding people accountable so you know i I guess this is just now kind of a psa and you know i'm I'm borrowing your attention uh your gracious attention to kind of vent a little bit but if i could ask you now you know after after hearing me out a bit if you if let's say what what are we for the people listening to this who love like let's say their family member or their lover or somebody in their past or in the recent history, they, they are going through this and they feel very alone. They don't know who to turn to. They don't know if they should just slither off into the shadows and perpetrate somewhere else where no one's going to care. You know, how do we address the outcomes and the aftermath um, for perpetrators? You know, I think we're, a lot is being done for survivors. Not enough, never enough. While we're having this conversation, and since I'm willing to out myself as a, to some degree, a, a reformed, wounded perpetrator, wounded healer, all of the above, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna pretend that I'm a saint. So I, I can start this conversation, and, and from a, a place of open heartedness. And I would just love to hear if you have seen or heard of, you know, uh, harm reduction, restorative justice, success stories. How do we approach the other half of this this equation? That's really the hardest part of this. That's my my um, question to you, the perpetrator question. Wow! Thank you so much for sharing that and for your transparency. Um, There's no easy question. Yeah. Yeah. What's that? Oh, um, no, I'll, I'll continue. Um, I think a question that someone should ask themselves is why do I want to atone? Or like, if you do want to atone, you know, does some of that come from a place of like not wanting other people to think that you're a rapist or like not wanting your reputation to be ruined? Like, are you able to connect with compassion for the person who, or people that you affected, you know, with what you did and like with whatever your issues are, or your circumstances were or are. Um, and I, I wonder if psychedelics even can play a role in that process. Like if even maybe MDMA could be somehow utilized to engage on you know, reflecting, I know that there's like people in Brazil looking at ayahuasca um, for folks who are incarcerated and both to deal with the trauma of incarceration as well as um, like 
considering what they did. Now, now this is like assuming that they were not just incarcerated for some racist reason, but like these real, I think a lot of these folks had committed like true crimes, like murder and um, I'm not sure about sexual violence, but maybe there's a place for that too. That's just what comes to my mind at, at first. I think I have a bit more to say, but um, does anyone want to speak to that? Or Maddie, do you want to say something? I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I mean, I think, and this comes back to kind of what I think a lot about is like, we don't really, you know, control our thoughts and we can control our actions. And sometimes, you know, in those states, we can't control our actions and you, and you end up, oh my God, I'm doing this. And I didn't even really, I didn't want to, I didn't mean to, but it's like, okay, so these things happen. It's like, so how can we come into accountability? What can we do? And I think, you know, because, you know, actions have consequences and we have to, you know, if the survivors might not want, might not want to, you know, aren't ready to, to, to be, you know, to deal with accountability. And it's like, it's really on them or it's like they're, you know, I think there's sometimes where they, I want to, I want to know what to do. I want to, I want to be okay. But the person has been traumatized and they, they're like, oh, I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready to be, to, to, to get into, to even to bring this into, into the light because it's such a hard thing. So it's, I don't know. I think it's really complicated and nuanced and I think it really has to go from a, 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 a person to person, case by case, uh, to, uh, to figure out what to do about these things, you know? And yeah, Ben, I'm, I just want to tell you, I feel for what you've gone through. And I, I also feel for the people who've been in a bit more dicey situations than that, done things that were more directly aggressive or harmful. Um, I think that most people listening can probably relate with what you, what you experienced, what happened, what you did or whatever, however we want to say it. Um, and I think like, your reactions to it were, I just want to validate those and normalize them and t tell you that I appreciate like you coming out about it, like no more hiding. That's, this is how we can address rape culture collectively is by people setting the example of, of what it looks like to come into accountability for what you've done and to talk about it, talk about why that happened, how it affected you, like what steps you've taken, just basically exactly what you did. It's, it's beautiful. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, for sharing that. And, you know, I feel like um, my vow and I wrote a long letter to that person um, who who I respected very much after that one incident, which which I consider to be, to my conscious knowledge, the the most transgressive sexual thing that I have done in my life. And um, and I, I, I I'm so glad that it, it isn't wor that it didn't wasn't worse and that I am not in the aggressor category to the, the extent of of actually penetrating someone who is unconscious or who that I'm forcing myself upon. Those are the, the most egregious acts. Um, and from that situation, I wrote to her and there was a combination of that. I mean, me feeling like the most ripped apart inside and just, I wanted to jump off a bridge. I, I didn't, I wanted to never speak again. I never wanted the stakes were so high for me because I held myself in high esteem as an ally to women, as a pro-feminist male playing in anarcho-punk bands where we assumed that we were creating a safe space. Yet we were all so foolishly enamored with 
absolute drunken debauchery and didn't have conversations like this and didn't have this level of consciousness. So I think things have moved forward a lot and, uh, and, and we're, we're a part of this with this conversation. So yeah, again, thank you for just acknowledging that. And I would say, you know, when I, when I wrote to her in that letter, I, I vowed to her. And one of the things she said to me, and I said, you know, what do we do from here? And she's like, I don't, I'm not going to let this take, destroy our friendship. It's happened before. You know, what needs to happen is that you need to form a men's group and you need to deal with this shit with your men friends and you need to stop this shit together. It's not my responsibility to grieve for you. I'm not going to let this fuck me up. I'm not going to be a victim, you know, and uh, and she came from a very empowered place and that moved me because she sp- basically spared my life in the scene. If she wanted to, she could have character assassinated me with that and I would not have, um, I would not have said, oh, she's lying and that this didn't happen. I would not have pulled that fucking shit. I would have said, you know what? She's right. I'm done. I, I, I quit. I bow out. You know, this is it. Um, but she gave me the, the blessing and the duty and responsibility to, to be one who confronts this stuff as it happens. And I have stepped up and I have confronted sexual misconduct in various places and people don't like it. And then one of the tactics that they have used when you talk about the defensiveness stuff, it's like, okay, when I, when I went after and I demanded there be due process in, amongst the community to address uh, a perpetual rapist, uh, sexual abuse, misconduct behavior in the scene, people actually came out to discredit me saying, we know that there's some skeletons in your closet, so you are instantly not qualified to be a part of this process. I'm like, no, I, the only, I'm the only one doing it. No one else cares. They're all taking sides to defend the rapists. And because they don't want to lose friends, the advocates of the victim are backing down. And because I can speak from that place of that feeling and that experience of remorse, you know, then I'm going to come up and say, I've got nothing to lose. I will come out here. And if you don't think I'm qualified to teach this guy, you know, what I went through just from that one incident, which was way more benign than what he was doing to say, look, dude, the way to have any self-esteem for the rest of your life is to, you know, we're not going to take a, 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 the letter R and make a, a brand and brand rapist on your forehead like they do in some countries and communities and it's accepted and you say, okay, yeah, well, you, <laughs> you definitely had to, um, you know, sacrifice something to go through that branding process and now people know, do they want to sit next to you on the bus or do they want to choose a different seat? They have a choice and you're forever branded. Like you didn't have to go through that you're spared that sort of, um, that sort of, uh, you know, recourse, but for damn sure, like this one dude, he was very, very influential and powerful. He had a lot of money. He had all the friends. He was in a rock star band. And what I thought about is a huge opportunity for him to start putting that money and influence into creating self-defense zines for women and, and trans folk and creating, you know, financing and supporting, facilitating and making himself into a success story of service. That's the, that is the positive outcome that I believe is possible and that I will advocate for. And that if you are a perpetrator listening to this, get busy being of service and you will be rewarded spiritually. You'll be rewarded not just by people thinking, oh, yeah, you're cool, but, you know, um, you know, that's not the motivation. It is a spiritual value that you can attain by, you know, coming into fullness and wholeness as, a, as, as being, you know, internally reformed. I, I know it's possible, and I just want to put that out there is, is uh, you know, it's not, 
easy. It's not fun. It's not pretty. And there's not a lot of support for this sort of thing. And people would much rather just like, oh, oh, he went to therapy. He's healed. Let him back in the band. Oh, he, you know, he saw a counselor and he promises never to do it again. And that doesn't cut it. And that's like really weak sauce stuff. But um, yeah, anyway, you know, I could, this is, this is just going to keep going. I feel like this is the the first time I've had really a, a, a sober clear headed, you know, group con- conversation about these, these, uh, very, um, very important and very treacherous, uh, you know, things that we're talking about here. So I appreciate everything that we've been able to, to, to discuss and that you have, you know, been very uh, gracious with, with my verbosity, you know, and I'm going to, um, I think that it's really beautiful what you did. You wrote her a letter and I, I want people listening to understand that like, that when I was a little kid, if I did something wrong, I would, you know, imagine how to apologize to my parents. And maybe it would be like by making them a painting or something. But then in the process, I like made a huge mess and got the paint everywhere. And but like, that was what I thought would be a good way to apologize. So I think that people should understand and be conscious of that. Um, if you victimize someone else, that the way to repair for that is to like ask the victim what they need. And if you weren't the victimizer, but you're someone trying to support a victim, it's about what the victim needs. It's about the victim. It's about the person who went through it, not about what you think would help them. Like they have to be a part of that process. And so it's like, it comes back to consent again of like, what does that person, what kind of reparation from you or from another do, do they want to consent to? Right. I feel like it's really important to mention that. And, and honestly, it's like Maddie has reminded me of that time and time again, as we talk about these things, is it's like it has to come from the person who's been, you know, the victim of the crime or whatever. Very well. Yeah. And one, I get one extra thing I'll say is that if this is in something, if you want to speak to this as well, is that it'd be nice if we could have trained advocates who are, not necessarily unbiased or, or, or neutral or, 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 you know, not in that sort of clinical sense, but it, it's, it's like if, if for every, within every click of a, of a group of young women, let's say if, and not to just be too gendered about it, but let's just start somewhere, you know, it'd be, it'd be great if there was, if we, if we all knew that there's people who are like the team captain or whatever, however you want, I don't like the sports metaphor necessarily, but someone who, who, we're not always scrambling to figure out how, how to ask these questions and what the response is. And this comes from, you know, doing drills. Like what if we, can we do fire drills in preschool? What if we did, you know, sexual misconduct incident drills in communities and people were elected or trained or selected somehow to be, and there's just no surprises at that point. You know, if something happens, okay, we go into this mode, we snap into this mode, people know what roles they have to play and, um, it's, yeah, it's not always a cookie cutter solution, but, but yeah, I feel like that's, that's what is, is, yeah, to, to, yeah, f- support and, and, and validate what you're saying that that would be great. So we just know like, okay, something happened. Who do we call? And in, in the yeah. spirit of that, yeah. Do you want to say again, what, uh, that resource, the resource was that even got this whole conversation started, um, where people should go on like a national, international level, the helpline, the email support that, um, what was that, that direct, that direct contact that you're affiliated with Leah again, if we could, so I can put it in the the notes, please. Yeah, it's 
<laughs> now I'm like, oh, is it? I think it's psychedelicwomen at gmail.com. But there's a chance that it's hello at psychedelicwomen.com. So let's just edit that in to be proper. Hello at psychedelicwomen.com. Cool. All right. Thanks. Okay, great. All right. So do you, either of you all have any other closing words you'd like to share? Certainly um, if you want to give your personal contacts and uh, websites, any other ways that people might want to contact you directly. And then I will, I will take us out with um, a, uh, a quote from Annie Sprinkle. Psychologist. <laughs> I'll go last. Um, yeah, ancientfilth.bandcamp.com. If you want to hear some music, um, uh, if you're interested in uh, uh, the Boston Entheogenic Network, we're at facebook.com slash group slash Ben Theogenic. Um, and yeah, ancientfilth.com. And yeah. <laughs> what about No More Hiding? Facebook.com oh, slash slash uh, that's a new one I gotta figure out. Facebook.com no slash more no more hiding now. Yeah, no more hiding now. Nice. Cool. And anyone can find my podcast, The Psychedologist, at thepsychedologist.com. It's like psychedelic psychologist, P S Y C H E D O L O G I S T. And uh, on Facebook as well, the psychologist. Awesome. All right. Any final words of wisdom? Any thoughts? Any other things you want to share? Um, Nothing else from me. Thank you. Thank you, Guide to Sexual Liberation, Healing, and Empowerment. (laughs) I try. (laughs) Oh, boy. I don't have a choice anymore. It's just is what it is. We gotta do what we gotta do yeah thanks for having us on yeah likewise and i hope your uh audience appreciates this as well and um great so here we go so i want to share a couple things gems from this article there's at the top of it uh she's got a quote from timothy leary that came from a 1966 playboy magazine interview and uh, i had never seen this before but i love it it's quote just say no spelled K-N-O-W, with from Timothy Leary. And uh, yeah, there's various perspectives on him, but uh, just say no. I thought that was a cute thing that was at the top of her article. And uh, she has a whole number of segments, LSD, mescaline, peyote, other drugs, MDMA, psilocybin, ayahuasca. And then this final closing section of this article is just says sex and psychedelics. And I'll read the first uh, three paragraphs here of this section where she says, Clearly, my experiences with psychedelics have been educational and beneficial with regard to my own sexuality and my life's work. From my observations, these psychoactive drugs have not been harmful in any way for me or for the people I know who have used them. Terrence McKenna pointed out that, quote, the profundity of hallucinogenic inebriation and its potential for positive feedback into the process of reorganizing the personality should have long ago made psychedelics an indispensable tool for psychotherapy, end quote. And I might add a tool for sex therapy. Oddly enough, I have not found a whole lot written about psychedelics in relation to sex when to me they seem totally interconnected. From what I have gathered, psychedelics are generally not used much as aphrodisiacs for sexual arousal, although people do report having phantasmagorical sexual experiences on them. 
more often the user gains some key information, has a new experience, or sees her himself from a new perspective, and any of this can greatly inform that person's sexual life. Just as each sexual experience can potentially teach us something about sex, each drug experience can potentially teach us something about sex. And for that matter, sexual experiences can potentially, can potentially teach us something about how to take drug trips more effectively. As I became more sexually experienced, I became much better at handling my psychedelic journeys. I learned how not to have expectations and how to surrender. So um, there's a lot more good stuff in this article, but I thought that was a, a choice little segment to close with. And um, yeah, with that said... Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I'm so glad that, that uh, all of the work that people have done to make this this conversation possible uh, did that work, and um, we will hopefully be in touch soon, and I look forward to the next time. Definitely that was a poignant quote. Thank you. Yeah, thank you all, too, and thank you, Annie. Thank you. Stay conscious. All right, you too. You all take care. Have a beautiful <laughs> adventure in your next yeah, experiences together. and. Yeah, and hopefully we meet someday. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely a good touch. Okay, cool. Take care then. Have a great night. All right, have a good one. All right, bye-bye. Bye.